God, we can never take away our sin on our own. So we thank you for the fact that you have done the work that we could never do through the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we want to be reminded now, we need to be reminded now that our life, our hope, our forgiveness is found in him and in him alone. Thank you for giving us this time. Thank you for another day of life where we get to consider all of your kindnesses to us. And I pray that you would use your word now to shape us, to motivate us to live more completely for you. And I pray if there's any heart in this room that has never turned to you, that they'd be turned to you today as a result of hearing the good news from your word. Your word is living and active. It's a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. And I pray that it would lead the way this morning, and that would be a conduit of your grace to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. So good to be with y'all. Always good to be with you. You can grab your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have one, uh, we'll have the verses and words up on the screens. And if you grab a chair Bible, it's uh, around page 743. We're in the book of Haggai. And so uh, you might be wondering why we're in the book of Haggai. But uh, if you're looking for Haggai, easiest way to find it probably is to find Matthew, which is the start of your New Testament, and go back three books. It goes Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and the Old Testament to finish out the Old, and then starts with Matthew. And so today we're actually going to, we're going to do verses 10 through 19. We're actually going to finish, finish Haggai the same Sunday we start Matthew. So next Sunday we'll be finishing Haggai and starting Matthew on the same sermon uh, it's the equivalent of a risk as a preacher to try to do something as crazy as that, but we're going to do it. And there's some tie-in. Hopefully, you'll see the reason why next week. Uh, but this book, um, hopefully, it's been an encouragement to you. Uh, this book is, um, let me kind of orient us in case you haven't been here um, the last couple of weeks. Haggai is one of the smaller, called minor prophets in the Old Testament. And so if you don't know much about the Old Testament, you know, one of the ways we can kind of understand one of the biggest themes in the Old Testament is really the Old Testament at the center of what happens in the Old Testament is a nation that came from one particular man, Abraham. From Abraham, God birthed the whole nation, namely the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is at the epicenter of what happens in the Old Testament. And so God gives them an identity. He rescues them out of slavery, gives them an identity, gives them a law. He tells them how to worship him. And over the course of centuries, their disobedience gets so thick and deep and significant that God allows a world power, namely the Assyrians at the time, to conquer the nation of Israel that was divided in the moment, but both Israel and Judah, Israel in, in the north, Judah in the south, are captured, taken into captivity. There's 70 years of captivity. So it goes from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians. And so under Persian rule, there's a king named Cyrus who gives them the freedom, urged on by God, to send them back to Jerusalem. And so there's this period called the return period in the Old Testament. And there's two books in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, that really capture the, the movement of a small group, a remnant of Israelites going back to Jerusalem. Ezra talks about how they rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah captures how they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And that ends the Old Testament. And so Haggai is one of two prophets. Haggai and Zechariah, which is right to the right of this book. They came on the scene in the, in the middle of what we know as Ezra and the rebuilding work. And so what had happened was the, the nation of Israel, because of outward opposition, 
they had, it had turned into apathy. They had started to rebuild the temple and they stopped for 14 years. And so Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene to incite them to, re, to rebuild the temple, the work that they had started 14 years earlier. And so we've journeyed so far seeing that. We see the message come to them. They respond in fear and in obedience to God and they start to rebuild. And so one of the major themes in the first half of the book is how we can't neglect spiritual priorities for the sake of selfish pursuits. And so I want to say this, just because at Christmas, uh, seeing the song, Come, uh, Come All You Faithful, you might sing that song and it doesn't, it feels like it, there's dissonance in your heart. I was really glad that there was, a, I love this song, by the way, there's nothing wrong with this song, but we can sing the first part of that song and not feel like we can connect to those people. Because you may come in here and you may feel very aware of the fact you've been unfaithful. Like you're not joyful. Like you're, you're not the ones who feel triumphant. And I want to encourage you, if you feel a twinge of that or a lot of that, like you're in the right place. Like the gospel message is for, quite honestly, those who are unfaithful. Those who are not triumphant. Those who are broken and needy. And so if you felt any of that singing that song, I just want to encourage you like you've You've come to the right place, and I have good news for you this morning. But Christmas does remind us of the fact that we, we have a need, and Jesus came into our need. He came into time and space and history to meet our greatest need and to provide us a way to achieve forgiveness. And Haggai this morning, uh, as we get close to finishing it off, is going is to zoom in on this word blessing. So as Christians, or maybe even in the church, depending on your background, like if, if you've been walking with the Lord, you probably talked about blessing at some point in your life. Like you've talked about the blessings of God and that's right, we should do that. But a lot of times um, it can just become a little bit of a buzzword and we don't really, it doesn't have a whole lot of meat to it. Like we don't even really know what we're talking about. It's just kind of this vague idea of God pouring out his blessing. And we're going to circle back to that because really what we're going to see is God confirming for us and for those at the time where blessing is truly found. And there's undoubtedly for all of us a current struggle to pursue blessings in places where God hasn't provided it. And so I want to encourage you that God is going to zoom us right in on the answer to like, where is true blessing really found? And it's found in this section as well as in many others in the Bible. Let's read Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read verses 10 through 19. I want you to join there with me. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just pay attention to the TVs. The verses will be up there. This is God's word for us in Haggai chapter 2. This is what it says. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. And this is what they ask. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare 
When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is God's word for us. So as we start off, this section takes place a little bit more than two months after what we covered last week. So there's a gap of a couple months. Assumingly, there's some building going on. And this is the third kind of mini sermon, like sermonette that Haggai brings to the people. And it's peculiar in some ways because it starts talking about clean and unclean. And, but this illustration that comes from verses 11 through 13 really is the heart of the message that Haggai is seeking to get across or God is seeking to get across through Haggai. And the main idea I want to convey to you is this, that blessing from God is only found by turning to God. So blessing from God is only found by turning to God. That's the main idea I would submit from this text. And so in verses 11 through 13, there's these really interesting questions about holiness and unholiness and clean and unclean. And what I would say to summarize maybe the, the, the essence of what's being said is that external alignment to things that are even good doesn't make you acceptable to God. So externally aligning yourself with a certain degrees of behaviors or not putting yourself in a place of doing certain things doesn't make you acceptable to God. Or you can think of it this way. For those of you who are parents or have worked with kids, it's, it's a, there's a high likelihood at times when you're caring for children that you can conform their outward behavior without reaching their heart. So as, as Christians, and maybe for those who come from a religious background, you've been around the church for a while, you know the lingo, um, you responded at some point in your life, but maybe your life is just disconnected from God. But yet your, your, your outward appearance seems to conform generally. And here's another way of saying it, is that you can conform outwardly without being transformed inwardly. And this section is trying to press upon your heart, my heart, our conscience, that ultimately external adherence is insufficient to make you acceptable to God. And that's the weighty but good reminder for all, all of us. So we see, this, we see this word holy meat. And so, I mean, if you've never read the Old Testament before, this is certainly weird. Even if you have, this like holy meat? Like what are we talking about? Is this the, just like the double-double at In-N-Out? Or like is it, you know, could you cook out double cheeseburger or whatever your choice of red meat is, some filet or ribeye or something? Smithfields, I don't know. If you don't like meat, I'm sorry, this illustration goes nowhere for you. But So when you look at Exodus chapter 20 through 40, so notably Exodus, what's happening is God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them out. He's going to establish them, give them an identity in the law, teach them how to worship him. And in the midst of that, chapter 20 through 40 is this really detailed accounting of how God tells them, he gives them the law, they establish the tabernacle, which is kind of the original temple, this temporary traveling tent where the presence of God would dwell with his people. He, he ranges the priests in all sorts of ways, the furnishings, a very elaborate picture. 
And so if you remember anything about the timeline I gave you historically, Leviticus falls within Exodus from a historical standpoint. And what Leviticus does is it kind of pulls out and broadens the understanding for us of all the exhaustive detail of what it meant to give offerings to God. All the different kinds of offerings, the things that were bad, things that were good. There's a whole chapter, chapter 11, dedicated to clean and unclean animals. And so this, this picture of clean and unclean, holy and holy, is really a mega theme in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus. It's a difficult read in some ways. But if you enter in with the understanding of like God is trying to emphasize to his people, his character, it's a little bit harder to get lost. Because in, in Leviticus chapter 10, um, one of the sections that to me has been most memorable is Leviticus chapter 10, the very beginning. Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's son. Aaron was a high priest. They were priests in the temple. And they offer what's, what's called unauthorized incense or fire before God. So they worship God essentially in a way that wasn't prescribed and they're incinerated in an instant. It's a really intense scene. And Aaron's watching the whole thing, their dad. And it's a very brief section but the culminating kind of response and reality to what, they, what took place there is this in Leviticus 10, 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified or treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So, so underneath and behind and all around the, the externals of how they were to worship was the, the holiness, the white hot holiness of God. Like you need to understand who I am and what I deserve and how you're to worship me and you're to do it that particular way. So this picture of clean and unclean really comes from that. But one of the things we get from our text this morning is this, this truth that is so important to grab a hold of that your external work can't make you internally holy. Like no amount of external adherence can make you acceptable to God. The whole illustration is meant to point us to that. And if I can be honest with you just for a second about the culture that we live in, like we live in a more churched culture in America. We live in a church society. Many of you, if not most all of you, have grown up with some church experience. For a lot of you, it's been fairly robust. You've been around church a lot. And there is a, there's a lot of good in that. But there's also a particular risk in that because you can know all the answers and do seemingly all the right things and conform outwardly, but yet there's no real life within. And God is wanting to emphasize and trumpet and highlight the fact that no degree of external behavior can make you acceptable to God. Please believe that this morning. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in this this chase throughout your life trying to find something that feels significant enough to do to make God love you. And the gospel undoes that. It says, you could never do that. Jesus did it for you. So turn, turn to him and rest in his work. But when we're spiritually and internally misaligned, any measure of external activity is rendered unholy, unclean, and unacceptable. One commentator put this way, one drop of filth will defile a vase of water. Many drops of water will not purify a vase of filth. Our hearts are so dirty. We don't like to think of it this way. Our hearts are corrupt. 
And because of, that, because of that brokenness, we deserve condemnation from God. And the only thing that can undo that is a supernatural work of God's grace that makes us new. You can't make yourself new. You can clean yourself up temporarily. It might look good on the outside, but to the one who sees your heart, his verdict would be that your heart is far from me. Verse 14, Haggai answered and said, so it is with my people. This whole illustration is to kind of push back into the people to say, this is what this is like. They, they've offered in ways where their hearts are disconnected. This nation before me declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. This is no doubt a reminder of what their hearts were like when they neglected like their spiritual priorities in the previous section that we dealt with. But I think it's also this. It's a reminder to them to pay careful attention to their hearts as they build, as they build. So the previous section we looked at in verses one through nine, the word work is in that section. God says, I'm gonna be with you, take heart. My spirit is in your midst, don't be fearful. But he says work. And I think anytime we talk about work, we have to be careful that we tend to our hearts because we're very prone. Like every major religion has a component of works except for biblical Christianity. You can't do anything to gain traction with God. You're saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, and that's it. But yet there's a work that is to be done once you come to know him. Your faith working outwardly in various ways and degrees. So this is a warning to them that as you build, remember God is concerned about your heart. And I would say it this way, that outward activity, even things that are good, can be pretty deceptive. And I might even say it this way, that like our outward conformity and external adherence can begin to preach something to us, like to affirm us. And it might sound maybe something like this. It might sound like, hey, you're doing great. Like, look, look at the good that you're doing, especially compared to other people your age or just in general. Like you're singing good songs. Like you're not drinking. You're not cussing. You're not watching R-rated movies. Like you're hanging out with the right people. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, those things are good. But the point is, is your trust in those things. Have you turned to those things to somehow gain acceptance in the presence of God? And Haggai is telling you, telling me, don't ever trust in your external adherence for your acceptance in the presence of God because you will be woefully disappointed in the end. It's only through the finished work of Jesus that you will be found acceptable on that day when you meet God face to face. As you build, remember, God is concerned about your heart. It's entirely possible to do or say the right things with the wrong heart. Mere external alignment and outward appearance is meaningless if your heart isn't turned to God. And Jesus confronted this in many ways. Mark chapter 7 is one of those examples. He was talking to the religious leaders who are kind of the quintessential, like, hey, he said, hey, you look good on the outside. You're spick and span on the outside, but inside you're like dead man's bones. That was his general message to the religious leaders. There was this massive adherence to laws, man-made traditions, and this is one of the many moments he confronts that. It's like you have all these traditions, and you care more about those things than your heart. This is what he says. In verse 6 of chapter 7, he says, And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This is him quoting from Isaiah chapter 29 from the Old Testament. 
He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him again and said to them, this is in verse 14, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 20, and he said, and what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Like our hearts are deceitful. They're wicked, and we need God to transform them. And so as we do the work of rebuilding, moving toward God, we have to be concerned, as God is, about our hearts. Like, where are our hearts? Have we turned to him? Or we turned to just some man-made religion to try to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves feel better, or to please the people around us? Or has there truly been a turn to God? Like, everybody who testified earlier, you didn't hear them talk about, like, man, my life is just better. Like, I just live in a better life. There's some truth to that. They're just blessing and obedience to God, but it's rooted in, like the foundation of it is faith in Jesus and a supernatural work of God's spirit to make them alive to the things of God, to where the things of God are now appealing and they have the capacity to follow him. So now in verses 15 through 17, it seems to kind of harken back to the message in chapter one. He says, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare it? So he's kind of focusing on the fact that like without, without God, things are futile. It's like you, when you came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When you came to get wine at the count of 50 measures, all you got was 20. He says, I struck you and I, I gave you difficulty in the midst of all of that. Why? So that you would turn to me, but yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So in many ways, this section, chapter two, kind of recapitulates, puts back together the picture from chapter one. You might remember, and you might feel this, and it's good to feel this challenge. Because as we think about the way we pursue the things in the world for the blessing that only God can provide, it's going to feel something like this. You have all this drink and you're still thirsty. You have all these clothes and you're never warm. Like you do all this sowing, but there's no harvest. And on and on it goes. It's this exercise in futility because we're looking for blessings apart from God when blessing can only be found by turning to God. So he says, consider. This picture is like give careful thought to. Set your heart upon this, that all material pursuits apart from me fell short and were inadequate. Wine wasn't available. Food was scarce. Building materials weren't as plentiful. Like everything you pursued seemed difficult. Scarcity and futility marked your efforts. God's blessing had been withdrawn from them. And so I think there's a, it's a good question here. There's a lot of reasons that we can feel distance from God. There's a lot of reasons, like circumstantially, we can feel like our efforts are futile. But there's one particular reason I would ask you to consider today. Like, do you look at your, your life and your relationship with God, and do you feel like, man, my prayers don't even make it to the ceiling, much less to heaven? Like, you feel a distance from God. One reason... There could be one reason for that, that you've never turned to him to begin with. 
Like you've never truly turned away from your sin and turned to God to find in him rest and joy and satisfaction. You're still trying to live in both places or never you've, maybe you've never turned to begin with. And the question that comes is, are you willing to turn to find blessing where it truly can be found? If you're with us during the study of Jonah, like we know that like God appoints difficulty in our lives to declare certain things to us. I don't know if you remember Jonah's plant. Like Jonah had this plant that he loved. It was a source of protection for him. And he rued the day that this worm that God appointed ate it all up. But, but God was eating his plant to demonstrate to him that his hope was in the plant and not in God. And God's good to give a worm to eat our, our plants that are idols in our lives. And God is good when he sends scorching east winds like he did to Jonah to beat him on the head so that he might turn back to God. Because the blessing is found when you turn to God, not when you distance yourself from him. It's interesting to note that Zechariah, so when you look just to your right in the order of these books, when you look at Zechariah chapter 1, it says in the eighth month in the second year of Darius. What's significant about that is when you look at Haggai chapter 2, if you look in verse 1 there, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, and then what we read today is the ninth month. So here's, the, here's what I'm getting at. Zechariah comes in between verses 1 through 9 and verses 10 through 23. There's a sermon delivered by Zechariah, verses 1 through 6 in Zechariah, right in the middle of what we're looking at today. And here's his message. Please hear me when I say this. The main message of Zechariah 1, 3 and 4, but really 1 through 6 is this. Return to God and he will return to you. Return to him, and he will return to you. That's what you see in Zechariah 1, verses 3 and 4. Look at it there with me. It says, therefore say to them, this is a message from Zechariah to the same people. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But look what the previous generation had done. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. They didn't hear or pay attention. We don't always listen to the declaration of our difficulty, like the voice of our pain. It yells loud, but we don't always heed its warnings. And my encouragement to you is to consider, like if there's a degree of difficulty in your life that's been caused because you haven't turned to God or you've turned away from him, maybe more specifically. But his promise to us still today is return to me and I'll return to you. Turn to me and I'll turn to you. All these trials, the, different, the, the various shades of difficulty in your life, at least in part, they're meant to turn you back to God, to take you to the end of yourself, that you might see that he's what you need and all you have in the end. The question is, are you going to turn to him today? Are you going to turn to him so that he might turn back to you? True blessing is only found in turning to God. In verse 18, Haggai goes on to continue to use this word consider, like deeply think about, set your heart upon. He says, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider is the seed yet in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing Here's how I'd interpret this, maybe in a little more plain language, so it lands. 
and all your pursuit of abundance outside of God, have you experienced abundance yet? And all of your chasing of the things of the world, have you experienced satisfaction yet? Is the grain fully in the barns for you there? That's what this is saying. Like all, this, all these different versions of pursuits of satisfaction, it's like, are you, have you found what you wanted there? Or has it left you wanting? And God's response is, from this day on, I will bless you if you turn to me. If you turn to me. All these things have yielded you nothing because you've been pursuing blessing and abundance apart from me. But blessing from God is only found by turning to God. And I think we, most of us, most naturally think of blessing in the material. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But there's certainly blessing that we, we experience in this world, certainly in this country, materially. Unfortunately, there's a whole brand of Christianity that wants to tell you, hey, you turn to God and he'll give you everything that you want. Like you turn to God, he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Everything's going to go well with you. It's going to be like unicorns and rainbows the rest of your life. It's the, what people call the prosperity gospel. And at least one way to summarize that is in the prosperity gospel, you don't come to God to get God. You come to God to get things. And maybe that hits you with like a realigning force because we firstly have to think about blessings in the context of eternal spiritual things before we think about material things. Let me illustrate this in a couple ways. The spiritual blessings we have as those who know God mean that every shade of futility will give way to fruitfulness. The different experiences of mourning, like even this week for family in our body who suddenly lost a loved one, even those moments of mourning can be turned into joy. You can't find that in any other place than by turning to God. Like your seasons of scarcity will turn into abundance and fruitfulness. Worldly ambition is destroyed by eternal purpose. Death is exchanged for life. The treadmill of performance is trampled under the feet of the perfect work of Jesus for you. And what's difficult about this is we think of the material because it's really all we see. It's all we know. It's what we touch. And so God promises us blessings that are already, but they're not yet. And that's difficult for the human heart because we want something now. We want it our way now. We want the satisfaction now. But in Ephesians chapter 1, one of the, arguably probably the greatest picture of blessing is given and articulated in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's this. If you're a Christian in this room, this is God's word for you this morning. When you think about blessing, here's his promise to you. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Everything that heaven contains is yours. God is there and he owns everything and everything he owns belongs to you. I don't know any greater way to capture the picture and the essence of blessing but here's the challenge. There is a not yet dynamic to the life of the Christian. We have to choose through the eyes of faith to believe that what's ahead is better than right now. And if, and if we believe that the things right now are better than what's ahead, you know what it does? It keeps us from turning to God because we turn to things. 
that are temporary, that give us maybe a momentary sense of satisfaction instead of finding God to be the source that's ultimately satisfying. But in Him, we find sowing that'll lead to harvest, daily bread God provides that will leave you satisfied. You'll drink and thirst no more. The clothes you possess will bring you warmth. And this may be what Isaiah was talking about when he wrote Isaiah chapter 44. As he depicted ultimately the renewal of the nation of Israel and the spiritual Israel that is the church through Jesus. He says this, he uses this language. He says, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land. This is the voice of God speaking to his people and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Listen to this part. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Why is that important? The basis of the blessing at Isaiah 44 is I belong to God. Like I'm his and he is mine. There's no greater reward. There's no greater blessing. When everything else here fades and is a memory, God will remain. His word will remain. And his people will stand with him. And what we know now in part, we'll know in full. And the call today is turn now. Turn to him now because there's real, tangible blessing in knowing and following God today that is the in part that we'll one day know in full. And that it's probably statistically reliable that in this room, undoubtedly there's some of us who need to, for the first time, turn to God. Turn away from the things that are capturing your attention and your affection and find in him everything that you desperately need and want that the world can never satisfy. Because in turning to God, we turn to the true and only source of blessing. God's message for us is turn to me. His promise to us is I will bless you. Will you believe it? Will we do it? Like, will we turn to him, believing that his blessing is better than what this world has to offer? Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, we do need your help. Uh, We need faith to believe that the things unseen are greater than the things that we see. Uh, Time and time again, you call us to to be captivated by, to think on the things of heaven, not the things of this earth. And God, we have difficulty there, there's no doubt. And we need supernatural enablement to see the, the things ahead as greater than the things of today. To see the things of heaven as, as greater reward and satisfaction than the things of this earth. And God, I pray that every single one of us would be convinced that there's satisfaction found in turning to you. The blessing is only found from God when we turn to God, and I pray that we leave convinced of that. God, if there's anyone in this room that's never turned to you, I pray that they they would relinquish, maybe for some, a veil of external adherence, and lay it down at your feet that they might be inwardly transformed, knowing that there's nothing we can do. There's no amount of church we can attend There's no amount of emotional responses we can offer that's sufficient enough to make us approved in your sight, 
holy in your sight. It's only the person who has placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus that in the end will be acceptable and holy in the sight of God. Thank you for the free offer of salvation through Jesus. Our hope is in him. Our life is in him. And God, I pray, even as we sing this last song, we'd be reminded of that day where we'll see you. There'll be no more need for the sun because the Lamb of God will be its, its light. There'll be no need for the temple because you, God, will be the center of attention and the centerpiece of worship. There'll be no mourning there. There'll be no competition for our hearts. Your kingdom will have come and your will will be completely done there in heaven. And we long for the day we'll see you face to face. And, but for now, this day, I pray that we live this day in light of that day, giving you everything we have and everything we are submitted to you fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one last song.